1: Right now, I want to turn our attention back to markets in particular, uh, how to invest. James Paulson joins us now. He's chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group, which oversees about $1.5 billion and is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. James, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with riskier credit because we've been speaking with some money managers who've been saying they have started reducing their allocations Two uh, U.S. high yield bonds, as well as m- more so even in Europe. In Europe, uh, the list includes J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Double Line, uh, Allianz, Global Investors, Deutsche Asset Management. Do you agree?
2: Well, I I certainly. Uh, bonds in general, I'd, I'd still be underweight. Um,
1: well, but so. bonds are—I mean, the, the bonds could be government bonds, which are a haven investment and would be—you yeah. know—it would hinge on inflation and growth. Uh, but if you have riskier credit, you're looking more at the creditworthiness of companies, and also the uh, pretty high valuations that we're seeing in the market right now.
2: Yeah, I would—I would stay overweighted uh, there, at least. I, I think that. The, the risk for that is, when do you think the next recession is? And I, I, I don't think that's real near. And if it's not, I think in the balance of this recovery, I think the bond investor is going to need a yield buffer. Because I do think before the next recession comes, we're going to reset interest rates higher. Um, Probably this recovery is going to end the way most post-war recoveries have ended, that is in some sense of overheat at some point. I do think wages and inflation probably rise above 3%, and um, I think that's going to cause a major reset in the 10-year yield, probably above 3% as well. And unless you have some yield buffer, whether that be from credit or whether it be from structure. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, a very damaging position to be in in just nothing but high-quality paper. The other thing about spreads is typically, um, although they're tight today, and I would agree with that, um, I think that they probably stay relatively tight until uh, recession risk gets pretty close. Um, And so even if they don't tighten further from here, um, you could still have – uh, excess return and, and, a, and a buffer against rising yields um, e- even if they just hold at the at the current you know tightness of, of spread that they they uh, possess today.
1: so Jim, you just said something that was actually incredibly radical. you said that uh, that you think inflation is going to pick up to three percent. that's radical and very different from what a lot of people are saying. What gives you confidence that that will happen?
2: well, um, you know the the range on inflation that we've had over the last quarter century almost has been very narrow. It's one of the great accomplishments of the United States is we've had very low inflation volatility. Not only low inflation, but it's been a very have low volatility um, over the last ten years. Now one standard deviation about the current inflation rate of one point seven percent is uh, above it is three percent, and below it is about thirty basis points. It wouldn't take a lot of inflation to shock people that are used to low and stable inflation. And I, I think 3% inflation looks very likely. Wage inflation year-on-year has year already Lisa, been at 2.9% inflation year-on-year in, year in this recovery. We're still hanging at 2.5%. Median wage inflation is already at 3.3%. Um, the the uh, other labor indicators suggest uh, private wage pressures. Um, If the unemployment rate, just like the claims number this morning, falling to almost its lowest level of the recovery, suggesting we're going to have continued job growth, I think it's very likely we're going to get wages over three. And if we do, I think companies are going to be forced to raise selling prices, and that puts your CPI above it. One other thing that's at play right now is the U.S. dollar is very close to breaking below a 31-month trading range. It's been down about 10%. Year to date, but I think it could, if it breaks that range, it could fall even further, which would also put some life back into crude oil and other commodity prices, aggravating uh, or at least elevating inflationary uh, expectations.
1: So right now I'm looking at a 10-year Treasury yield at 2.2%, uh, a little bit more than that, but it's down on the year. Given your expectation for a surprising amount of inflation and possibly 3% uh, wage growth, where are you seeing this 10-year yield at the end of this year?
2: Well, I'm not sure this will all you know, happen before the end of the year. Indeed, I, I think that One of the reasons I'm positive on stocks right now, Lisa, is that I think we're in a sweet spot with inflation, where we're we're growing the economy. The Citigroup Economic Surprise Index has been rising again since late June in the United States. Uh, reports have been getting better, but we're not aggravating inflation and interest rates. As long as we stay in that sweet spot, I think stocks move higher. Eventually, if we aggravate those, and I think we will, uh, that could be what ends the stock market rally as well as the bond rally. But personally, I think that's probably a 2018 event now. Um, But I would get prepared for it, and I I certainly wouldn't be hanging out in overweights in a a 2.2% 10-year treasury, because I think the terminal level is going to be probably more like 3.5% before this recovery is over.
1: Jim Paulson, thank you so much for joining us. Jim Paulson is Chief Investment Strategist with the Luthold Group in Minneapolis. One other area that we are watching is in currencies, particularly the euro. Uh, it fell at one point the most since December, although it's uh, recovered some of the losses. After ECB, European central bank officials said that they're worried that the euro might strengthen more than justified by the ep- uh, economic upturn. And with us to discuss is Doug Borthwick. He's a managing director and head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Uh, Doug. I first want to just get your thoughts on the knee-jerk reaction by the market of selling the euro based on this, com- these comments by the ECB. Do you think the ECB would and could take actions to devalue the euro?
0: No, I don't think they'll take actions to devalue the euro. I think this is a really job winning uh, effect. And I think that the market maybe has taken it a little the wrong way in that euro strength can be shown not just against the dollar, but against many other currencies. Uh, The euro you know, trading around this 117.34, it's still much lower than 160 it was back in 2009 or even 137 in September 2014. And uh, so when you look at who does the Europe export to, well, only 20% is coming to the U.S. So if Europe's concerned about their exports and the strength of the euro, it may not be just against the U.S., but certainly against China. So Euro-China, which has retraced about 61% of its uh, high to low going back to 2014, certainly looks like the euro may be a little bit overvied or maybe overdone there, but against the dollar, if we were to go 61% above the lows there, we're looking at 125 in the euro. So I think that the euro still has further moves higher against the dollar, certainly because while the ECB may be anxious about the strength of the euro, this U.S. administration, specifically the Trump administration, was very concerned about dollar strength, but not only is uh, the U.S. concerned about it, the BIS and the IMF, both around these levels, have said that they believe the dollar to be 10 to 20% overvalued. In other words, you've got the U.S., and, uh, you know, talking against the ECB, no one wants to have a strong currency, but I think it's the U.S. that's really in the driving seat here in that The euro still is undervalued relative to maybe where it should be, and I think that's probably around the 125 level.
1: Well, before we get to the dollar, because I do want to get your thoughts on the dollar, I just want to stick with the ECB for one second, because to me, the implication here is, even if this is just jawboning, the the knee-jerk reaction on the part of ECB officials would be to hold benchmark rates lower for longer and to move uh, more slowly as far as removing accommodation in order to keep the economy kind of in this place where the euro is uh, sort of stabilized even as, it, uh, as, as the economy grows, right? I mean, because I don't really see what other moves the ECB could
0: take. Well, the, the ECB would have to keep on doing something at a, at a greater level than the Fed is doing it. Now, we can look at the Fed right now and believe that maybe there's one more rate rise this year. And uh, certainly the ECB won't be raising rates, but even if you look at the 10-year yields, in the U.S., 10-year yields are unchanged in the year, but 10-year yields, let's say for Germany, are maybe 50 basis points higher. So the yield differential is moving more in the favor of Europe than it is in the U.S. And remember, when you look at currencies, you you have to look at, well, what's the Fed doing versus what's the ECB doing? The ECB going forward into 2019 is maybe going to have Biedman in charge. is much more of a hawk and would like to see rates uh, get a little bit higher in the eurozone, whereas you may have Cohn coming into the Fed in the U.S., who's seen as being a dove. And so longer term, we're still looking at the U.S. maybe having lower yields for longer and the ECB moving out of the lower yields. Plus, the ECB is now running out of products they can buy in the market. You know, there's only so much you can buy in terms of fixed income in Europe, and they begin to really fill their coffers already.
1: With respect to the dollar, uh, the dollar did strengthen a a touch today after uh, falling quite a bit yesterday, uh, basically just due to some of the turmoil, particularly having to do with the Economic Council and and the CEO stepping away and this idea that possibly uh, there could be less progress made on tax reform and other policy issues. But I have to wonder what your view is. Do you think that the dollar has further to fall? It sounds like you do.
0: I, I certainly do. I think that the dollar is going to be on this weakening stance really going off over the next couple of years. I think that a weak dollar policy or certainly a step away from the strong dollar policy is the new U.S. Uh, term. And so based on that, I think that what folks are worried about more globally is not how far the dollar is going to weaken, but just how I mean, what, what's the pace of that. And I think that we'll get more of a, a sense at Jackson Hole. But certainly, there is a very strong belief and understanding in the U.S. that, in order to keep equity markets as bid as they are, you need to have the dollar continue to weaken. Because remember, for every one percent that the dollar weakens, that con- that moves into a half a percent rise in terms of the earnings per share for the S&P 500. So, as the U.S. you know, if the U.S. dollar was to weaken by twenty percent, you'd see earnings per share go up by ten percent. Yeah. And so that's yeah, that that's considerable. And still within the U.S., we still have this issue where you have underfunded pension plans. You've got you know, government pension plans that are sitting there—they're very underfunded right now. And the way to boost them is by having equities boosted. The way to do that certainly would be to have the dollar weaken considerably.
1: Doug Borthwick. Thank you so much for your comments. Doug Borthwick is managing director and head of FX at Chapdelaine and Company. Well, today, Walmart posted its best grocery sales growth in five years for the second quarter of 2017. Uh, this is really important because the grocery business accounts for more than half of Walmart's overall revenue. It beat estimates, and yet its shares are down. To get a little bit more perspective about why and whether this decline will continue, I want to bring in my colleague, Sarah Halzak. She's a retail columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly. Uh, Bloomberg Gadfly is a fast commentary section with a smart an- analysis of breaking news. Sarah, what was your take when you saw their sort of tepid expectations going forward paired with this pretty impressive uh, performance?
3: Yeah, look, I think Walmart is doing the right things it needs to do for the long term. Uh, What investors seem to be skittish about was the fact that this uh, third quarter guidance wasn't quite as high as they hoped it would be. But Walmart is in a position right now where it really needs to spend big if it's going to, in a serious, full-throated way, take the e-commerce fight to Amazon. And so if it's not spending this money um, and pressuring its profits, it's hard to see how three, five, ten years down the road it's a viable competition. Competitor in the digital space. So how much money is it spending and, and where exactly is it spending? Yeah, it's spending several billion over the next few years, and a big part of that investment is in supply chain. Uh, what it wants to do is to have fulfillment centers that are more state-of-the-art so it can get orders to people more quickly. And it's also experimenting with different kinds of tactics for reaching shoppers in a more profitable way. So, for example, on millions of items now, Walmart is giving you a discount if you buy the item online but pick it up in store. That's a more profitable transaction for them, and so they want to reward that.
1: You know, I have to wonder, Walmart's not alone in shelling out as much money as they can to try to boost their online operations and their uh, digital distribution. I'm wondering if, A, things are getting a lot more expensive (laughs) because of the demand from Walmart and Target and everybody else, uh, and and B, whether they're behind the the times already. I mean, we were talking yesterday about how uh, if they didn't impress today, it was going to be a really rough next two quarters. Do you agree?
3: Yeah, so... I think there is something to the fact that they are a little bit behind the curve here and they probably should have been making these investments uh, quite a bit earlier, but at least they're trying now, right? And I think it's also encouraging that they're thinking creatively and acquisitively. I mean, we've seen them uh, pick up Jet.com. They've also bought Bonobos. They've bought ModCloth. And uh, there are reports out there now that they might be looking to buy Birchbox. And so at least uh, they're, they're thinking in different ways about how they might boost uh, their e-commerce muscle uh, by bringing in sort of aqua hiring, right? Bringing in some different talent uh, to help them think differently about this problem.
1: One other uh, problem that I am facing right now is that the margins are much smaller on I- online sales for Walmart, just simply because uh, the amount that they have to pay to fulfill the order and process everything uh, is higher at this point. If they're trying to move more of their business online and they make less money from it and they're spending more, uh, this equation doesn't seem that rosy. That means they have to make it up on volume.
3: Do -hmm. they address that? Not that specifically, but I think the hope is that as over time, uh, things get better on the profitability front, because theoretically, once you have a network built out, right, once you have these supply chains that have all the right uh, fulfillment centers, excuse me, that have all the right technology in place, once you're not building those from scratch, that you can start to have some, you know, more scale benefits there. And that's sort of the similar argument that Amazon makes and in that investors seem more convinced when Amazon makes it, right? We're plowing all this money into building out our Supply chain, and that will benefit us on the back end. And I think Walmart is hopeful that the same thing will happen for them.
1: And Walmart still is very much a brick and mortar operation. And there were were a lot of complaints in the past few years about shelves being unstocked, about staff being inattentive. Uh, Did they talk at all about better kind of operations within stores, as well as uh, what the increase in wages that they did deliver has done to their bottom line and, and what they expect going forward? (laughs)
3: you <laughs> Yeah, so they've said uh, for the last several quarters that they've seen uh, improving customer scores when they survey them about the experience that they're having in stores. And that likely reflects that they have made all these efforts on making sure stores are better stocked, making sure produce is fresher, and deploying staffers in the right way so that you're getting good customer service. So they've now had 12 straight quarters of positive comparable sales and I think almost the same number of straight quarters of positive traffic. To the stores, and so that's a good sign that some of those investments are working for them.
1: You know, I'm struck by what you're saying, which is which is wise. You know, I mean, at some point they're going to have to spend, so they should spend sooner than later. Uh, and yet, it just the shares are just not forgiving. <laughs> Investors are not being forgiving right now. Uh, do you think that they will come uh, to some kind of uh, uh, kumbaya moment where they say, you know what, we we believe in you, or do you think that they're going to sort of go into a show me mode for the rest of the year?
3: I I think that for at least for the short term, there could be a little more show me because it's hard for me to see how, you know, just in the next one quarter or quarter after that, they do something that really meaningfully changes their narrative to investors on this question of profitability. Um, But over the long haul, if they really continue to deliver this strong e-commerce growth, uh, maybe investors will start rewarding them for it.
1: Sarah Halzick, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Sarah Halzick is a retail columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly. It's our fast commentary uh, group. You can find it at bloomberg.com/gadfly on the web or on the terminal at ni space gadfly go. Yesterday was a pretty big day uh, in turmoil land for politics. We have President Trump uh, generating controversy after his press conference uh, and some comments from Republicans. And then you had the disbandment of the Council of CEOs. This matters to markets, arguably, because it raises some questions about how quickly President Trump can move on his policy agenda. And here to talk about that is Mike McDonough. He's Global Director of Economics Research and Chief Economist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us in our 1130 studios. So, Mike, how much does all of this actually make an impact on these policies? I mean, are you getting sense? I mean...
4: Yeah. So I think, you know, the 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 actual resignation of the CEOs and disbanding of the councils, uh, that's somewhat more symbolic uh, than meaningful in a way, because, I mean, I, I actually said this, I think that no one, no, not many Americans, if any Americans could name any successes the council has had. But, it, you know, as of 24 hours ago.
1: But it was always symbolic. It was never anything but symbolic. So to the extent that it was a symbolic vote of support that gave people confidence, it's now the opposite.
4: Well, you, you know, like I said, every, everyone could now name at least one CEO who's quit from this panel. Where it makes more of a difference is infrastructure is one area where both the Republicans and Democrats need it. Agree, it needs to get done. They have some differences on how. Uh, but when you're going, when you're coming out and saying, "Okay, this is the infrastructure press conference. I'm going to do something." You should leave with everyone applauding everyone joining hands and saying, finally, something is getting done. Uh, for the press conference t- to derail as it derailed, and you've basically uh, you know, shifted from infrastructure to these the, the divisive comments where you have Republicans coming out and, and com- coming out against you now, you basically have gone from something that should have had a really good outcome to where it's increasingly difficult to see how he's going to be able to get any of his agenda done. And it's incredibly important that he does get some of this stuff done. Infrastructure, is needed. Tax reform is needed. I don't see how it gets done. And this is maybe the nail in the coffin for a lot of that.
1: So but how much was it his agenda to start with? Because as you just said, it was Republicans and Democrats who wanted to come together and come up with some infrastructure plan. I mean, can't they do that anyway? Or does he have to be leading it?
4: Well, I think, you know, the, the the president has to lead that sort of, I mean, maybe it's possible some of he, he gets out of the way and let some of his cabinet handle it. But I mean, it's going to be hard for him to get muster any the, the type of support needed. Because, you know, while I said both sides agree, this needs to get done, they differ on how it should be done, you know, be it from public private partnerships versus how much the government should fund on the infrastructure side. And then on the tax reform, who who should it benefit, right? Should it
1: well, so on on the Bloomberg, um, I think in the past in the past week or so, there was a story about two thirds of economists surveyed think that the current administration will get some kind of tax plan passed by the end of the year, but that the effects won't take place until uh, after after the year, after possibly next year as well.
4: I, I that 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 ratio surprises me I think that the idea of there, there there's two things we need to look at one is the probability of tax reform comprehensive tax reform that seems like it's zero percent it seems like it's been zero percent for a while uh, then there's the probability for tax cuts that's probably what the economists in this survey were referring to uh, I mean I think there is a chance. You could get some tax cuts, but I don't think I would be in the two thirds thinking something could happen. And keep in mind that survey was probably done before yesterday and and the past week. For sure.
1: But I have to wonder how much, where I was going with this, is how much is this optimism about the policies uh, that President Trump espoused during the campaign, how much has that optimism been baked into markets already and it hasn't been already beaten out uh, that still needs to sort of come out of the market should we really? Really failed to see anything no. materialize.
4: So I think you saw uh, euphoria fading a bit uh, in the rates market, in the dollar. Uh, equities is a place where you haven't seen it come out as much, and I think that's partially because uh, you know it did start to get baked in. But then once people started baking it in after the election, you had a series of better than expected earnings seasons. So that kind of helped catalyze the view that that was going to happen. So I think that uh, you know if if you look at the reaction of the market this morning to the rumor that Gary Cohn may have been resigning. I think that's kind of an indication of what could happen if the market sees no hope of any of this stuff getting done.
1: I have to wonder, though, I mean, what is, the, I, I, do you really believe that? Do you buy that, that, that if Gary Cohn were to resign, that the market would tank? Well, you
4: have to think about it. It's, it's, it's not just meaningful because he's, he's the National Economics Council director. He's also the front runner to take over the Fed. So the market needs to price in, you know, the impact on Trump's uh, physical agenda. But then it also has to kind of look at, well, what could the monetary policy implications be if he were to actually resign? So it's not just simply saying this is his current job. You have to look at the fact that he is a front runner to replace Yellen in February. Uh, So what impact might that have, right? He's he's probably like Yellen, a kind of low interest rate guy. The market likes that. Uh, Who could the possible, um, you know, replacement be if he were to step down to be the front runner? You know, would it increase the likelihood that Yellen uh, stays in the job? You know, these are all questions that the market had to momentarily begin answering this morning. I what mean, an
1: ego boost, you know? It's like if someone's, someone leaves the whole market tanks, you know, I bet, bet he might be feeling pretty good about himself. <laughs> Mike McDonough, thank you so much for joining me. As always, Mike McDonough is Global Director of Economic Research and Chief Econ- uh, Economist at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.